Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Giuliano, SCA's Chief Research Officer, and you're listening to an episode of the RICO Podcast, a series of the SCA Podcast. The RICO Podcast is dedicated to new thinking, discussion, and leadership in specialty coffee, featuring talks, discussions, and interviews from RICO Symposium, the SCA's premier event dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are driving specialty coffee forward. Check out the show notes for links to our YouTube channel, where you can find videos of these talks. This episode of the RICO Podcast is supported by Toddy. For over 50 years, Toddy brand cold brew systems have delighted baristas, food critics, and regular folks alike. By extracting all the natural and delicious flavors of coffee and tea, Toddy Cold Brew Systems turn your favorite coffee beans and tea leaves into fresh cold brewed concentrates that are ready to serve and enjoy. Learn more about Toddy at toddycafe.com. Toddy, cold brewed, simply better. Rico Symposium and the Specialty Coffee Expo are coming to Portland in April 2020. Don't miss the forthcoming early bird ticket release. Find us on social media or sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up to date with all of our announcements. Today, we're very happy to present the first episode of The Role of Innovation in Technical Advancement, a session recorded at RICO Symposium this past April. This session explored and evaluated advances in innovation positioned to make an impact within our industry as we work to resolve the coffee price crisis. For those of you familiar with this year's RICO program, you might notice that this episode, our first release of the RICO 2019 podcast series, comes from the session that closed this year's event. This year's event was all about coming together to learn and collaborate and act to address the coffee price crisis that faces all of us, especially coffee. And across our two days together, some big projects working to tackle different facets of the crisis were announced. Excitingly, these projects are just getting underway, so we wanted to kick off this year's series with some clear and concrete calls to action. How does a living thing get to be the way it is? How does a coffee come to taste the way it tastes? How does a plant's blueprint for what's possible, its genetics, interact with complex and changing environments to produce flavor in the cup? In today's episode, Hannah Neuschwander, Director of Communications at World Coffee Research, describes a major global trial underway designed to help us understand how coffee genetics interact with the environment, and a new study that will help us see how those things impact coffee flavor and chemistry. I also had some exciting things to announce just before Hannah began, which ties into the big question this episode explores. How can we harness scientific understanding to make coffee better and open up new avenues for farmer profitability? To help you follow along in this podcast, I'll chime in occasionally to help you visualize what you can't see. Okay, so I'm taking off my Rico hat now, and I'm putting on a different hat, um, which has to do with my, um, uh, as some of you may know, my, my title with the SCA is the Chief Research Officer, and um, Rico is part of, of that initiative. Um, uh, our research initiative, but the research uh, initiative that we have goes farther beyond this conference. But let me start with, uh, with RICO itself. So those of you that joined us last year remember that on this day of the conference in the afternoon, we had some conversations and we took some notes of those conversations and we built some word clouds based on what we thought were the important areas of focus required to move forward with coffee sustainability. And of course, the question that we were asking ourselves was very much the same question that we're asking ourselves today. 
fiscal sustainability, social sustainability, all these things that we've been talking about. And you can see that the number one thing that this community that was talking about sustainability is the need for research. In addition, if, we're, if we look towards the same discussion that we had about economics in coffee and what we needed in order to make progress on understanding and, and improving the economics of coffee, the number one response was data. So this, to this community, there is a deep understanding of the concept that knowledge is important. Okay? And we get to knowledge um, through research and scientific investigation. And we care about knowledge because we know that knowledge makes things better. So when problems like this are confronting us, like the current coffee crisis, we know that more knowledge can help us make things better. But the other thing about knowledge is that it sometimes it makes things better in unanticipated ways. And let's explore this a little bit. And in order to explore it, I just want to encourage us all to take mushrooms. I've got a picture up on screen of psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, I didn't mean these kinds of mushrooms. I meant these kinds of mushrooms. And now I switch it to a picture of regular mushrooms. Um, and I mean, let's take mushrooms for example. So there's, in the mushroom industry, there's an organization much like ours. It's called the Mushroom Council. And um, in 2014, they started a research initiative. They wanted to understand more about one of the properties, the fundamental properties of mushrooms, um, which is this umami characteristic. That's one of the basic five basic tastes that we can perceive in our mouth, and it's, some, and it's a flavor that we associate with meatiness or um, savoriness, and it's clear that that property exists within mushrooms, but they, uh, they did a sensory initiative to see if they could understand it better. And this led to some scientific publications, including this one by Miller et al., talking about the flavor-enhancing properties of mushrooms in meat-based dishes in which sodium has been reduced and meat has been partially substituted with mushrooms. Okay? So this is a dense sort of scientific, sensory scientific treatise, but notice what they're talking about. They're talking about understanding a little bit how uh, mushrooms and meat might go together and enhance one another and something about reducing sodium and something about substitution. So what the, what that, um, the Mushroom um, Council did is they took that scientific output and they put it into lay language for their community um, and explained the results of this scientific study. This turned into somebody in the mushroom community said, wait a second, this has taught me something. This teaches us that if we take mushrooms and we chop them up really fine, the same size as meat, the meat particles in ground meat, and mix them with ground beef, we're going to get a good result because that's what the research said. And this initiative that was based on, uh, on, coffee, uh, on uh, mushroom research, sensory research, turned into itself a newsworthy item in the scientific community because now we're making a, uh, a marketing initiative called The Blend, is what they called it. Um, and uh, and we're, turning it into, we're turning the scientific research into something that's marketable and, um, 
and of use to the mushroom industry. So in 2015, a year after the, um, the scientific research uh, initiative started, and they had that initial publication of the scientific paper, they launched this blend uh, initiative, and the next year, in 2016, the mushroom sales in the United States hit an all-time high. And this spike was attributed to the blend initiative, this initiative of mixing um, mushrooms with ground meat. And I don't know if you've noticed it, now you'll notice when you go to the supermarket, this blend idea is referenced on mushroom containers all over the world and um, all over the country. And in uh, institutions, they're substituting mushrooms, which, has, um, which increases vegetable consumption and lowers the uh, carbon footprint of, of ground meat. So that's a success story of how the mushroom industry, through a research initiative, had this unanticipated consequence of positive market activity for the mushroom industry. Wouldn't that be cool if we did something like that for coffee? This year, the um, board of the Specialty Coffee Association decided to launch a new initiative called the Coffee Science Foundation. And here's why. Because we know that, it, that in coffee, we're under-researched and under-innovated. We've heard that over and over today. You heard Vava just um, describe the situation. And specialty coffee is even more under-researched and under-innovated than the other kinds of coffee because we're decentralized, we're specialized, and we're somewhat disaggregated. So what we recognized was we need an institution that can aggregate industry funding towards collaborative, and that's important, collaborative, pre-competitive, and scientifically, research, scientifically rigorous research to, to uh, benefit the coffee industry. And luckily, the, um, the United States gives us a structure which, within which we can build such an institution. It's called the 501c3. It's, it's a foundation, a charitable foundation that people can, individuals and companies can donate to to drive this kind of research. So we decided to launch exactly this kind of, of, of institution. And the mission of this institution, which was established this year, was to advance the understanding of coffee <clears throat> and secure its future through research, knowledge building, and most importantly, outreach, bringing the information out to individuals like you and the rest of the coffee community. So I've been talking about this to many of my colleagues, and um, I get the number one question and that is, didn't we do this already with WCR? And it's true, WCR has done an amazing job over the past um, years uh, driving research, knowledge building, and understanding. However, one of the strengths of WCR is their laser focus on understanding genetics and driving that project in coffee. And you're gonna hear more about that in just a minute. And that's super important, and, and it is indeed probably the most critical issue facing our, our scientific issue facing our community right now. But it's not the only issue. There are, we just talked in the last session about consumption, so we need to do more consumer research, more consumer understanding, more sensory research and sensory understanding, um, uh, research on roasting and other kinds of post-harvest um, agricultural practices that are outside of the scope of WCR's work. So what we've done is we've envisioned uh, an institution that can partner with institutions like WCR and, and help us drive um, progress in 
all of the other fields of, special, of, of scientific investigation. So the question then becomes how it works. So the idea here is that everybody in the room, institutions, um, uh, companies, individuals, can contribute both in, um, for specific, what we call restricted funding projects, so a specific kind of uh, scientific investigation, or unrestricted funding, that's just to support the scientific enterprise in general, and um, take those funds, and we, the Coffee Science Foundation, puts that to work doing research generally at academic and other kinds of institutions. We manage that research. We help make sure that it's meeting the goals that we have set out. Then we take the outputs, we manage them, and we disseminate them back to the community. So we become essentially a, a bridge between the coffee community and the academic research community. Um, we've already got a number of projects going, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. Our strategy, so we've already started this pro project, and I just want to tell you a little bit more about our strategy. We're doing research already. Um, there's a number of presentations this week at the, uh, at the SCA Expo on some of the projects that we're doing in extraction. So this is physical and sensory research, um, scientific research into um, some of the sensory attributes of brewed coffee and some of the dynamics of it um, and understanding the extraction process better. We've also got a stream of sustainability research, working with the SCA Sustainability Center to, um, and we've just launched a, uh, a research initiative looking into the relationship between labor practices on coffee farms and quality um, uh, of the coffee coming from those farms. And finally, and very importantly, um, market, consumer, and uh, economic research. So this is the numbers that drive our, our, our community. And we've got a number of, uh, of, of, um, of research initiatives around that. So I can't go into m much more detail here because of the, uh, the, um, the shortness of the time, but I'm eager to talk with you much more about this strategy and what we're trying to do. So at the moment, what we're doing is we're, we're executing the, the projects that we've already got in the pipeline, but we're funding new projects and we're looking for partners. That is, research partners and most especially funding partners to help us drive this research forward. So like many of the speakers before me, um, I am also presenting the opportunity for us to get involved and put some of our resources to work driving the scientific enterprise and the research enterprise um, in coffee. I've mentioned WCR already before. There's another opportunity coming up, which is you'll hear from Hannah next, but the Coffee Science Foundation will be partnering with World Coffee Research and in order to be able to channel some of the resources from our community towards a specific scientific project, which you'll hear about in a minute. If you're interested in getting involved, please reach out to me or any of these four people, Vera Espindola, Rafael, Juan Luis Barrios, Frank Neuhausen, and Mary Telly. This is our, our uh, inaugural founding board of the Coffee Science Foundation. Please, we'd love to talk to you about how to get involved. So on behalf of the Coffee Science Foundation, I thank you for your interest and involvement, and I encourage you to join us. Thank you. All right, thank you, Peter. And that's all very exciting stuff. So coffee genetics and the environment that the coffee thrives in, how does that influence the final flavor of the coffees that we drink? So up next, 
I'd like to invite Hannah Neuschwander. She is the Communications Director of the WCR to share more on their findings, on the research that they've been carrying out in this regard. Hannah, welcome. Hi, everybody. I'm so, so happy to be here. Coffee flavor, where does it come from? There's so many different ways to answer this question, and depending on where you sit in the value stream, which is my new favorite term that I'm going to take away from this week, you might uh, be thinking of different answers. How was it processed? How was it roasted? Uh, was it brewed in 24 seconds as espresso or over 24 hours as cold brew? And all of these things do have a tremendous impact on how coffee tastes in the cup. But they're all uh, things that happen to the bean, right? This sort of raw material, this commodity. And before coffee is a bean, something I never get tired of contemplating, um, it's something else. Every single coffee bean, all of the trillions and quadrillions of beans that are moving around the world at any given moment, are actually seeds, right? We know this, but it's easy to forget it. Every single bean at one point had the potential to become a new coffee tree. And that leads us to a different kind of lens or answer to this question of where does coffee come, where does coffee flavor come from, right? Inherent in the bean is a genetic potential. The seed contains the blueprint, the possibilities for what coffee can taste like. We know that that genetic potential can be expressed in different ways. Not every single coffee that's a geisha is gonna taste the same. Where it's grown, the environment in which it's grown, matters and has an influence on how that potential is expressed. The same way that all those other downstream things can have an impact on how that potential is expressed, the roasting, the grinding, et cetera. Scientists call this, uh, this interaction between genetic potential and how that potential is expressed based on different environments, the genetics by environment interaction, right? Most of us have a kind of general um, loose understanding of the fact that, that, that this exists and it's true. And I'm gonna show you an example from coffee. So um, here you have some data from a trial site in Peru where we're looking at a number of different varieties um, and how their early vegetative growth is going. So this is things like how tall is the tree, how wide is the stem. Hannah has a picture of a diagram contrasting differences in coffee plants, the plant's height, the stem diameter, etc. There are seven varieties pictured and they are all being grown in Peru. And we can see, um, you see the sort of spaghetti soup in the middle. There's lots of varieties, but two seem to be doing pretty well here. Um, first, you have the, the big, thick orange lines representing the Mundo Novo variety. This is a variety from Brazil. And it's doing pretty well, better than the others. But even better than that, you have this kind of exciting-looking uh, blue line way outside the rest. Um, this is an African variety called K7. The point to note here is that most of the coffee varieties shown have minor differences across measures like plant height, stem diameter, etc. But there are two coffee varieties that are higher across all of these measures, the Mundo Nuovo in orange. And then even higher is the K7 variety in blue. The K7, when planted in Peru, is head and shoulders outperforming the other plant varieties. So this is really cool, right? We can, we can clearly see that uh, K7 seems to have a really high genetic potential for at least um, in 
in early growth, uh, good, good vigor. Um, I should say that the data from this trial is just from, from very young trees, less than a year old, so we're not drawing any firm conclusions yet, but we're sort of excited by the possibilities we see here. So let's look at the same varieties, though, in a different environment. We're going to go to Zambia. Very different environment. Much hotter, much drier. And we can see that the Mundo Novo, that orange variety, has a kind of similar uh, looking profile. But all of a sudden, the K7 looks very, very different, right? The K7 variety that was much higher than all the others when planted in Peru is now much smaller. It's now in the middle of the pack. Right? It's not, it's not way better than. It's actually kind of a little bit worse than the K7. When we look at these two things together, it shows us very clearly that there is a genetics by environment interaction happening. That K7 has a high genetic potential, at least where early growth is concerned, but that it's not expressed the same in different environments, right? So this is cool, I guess, to understand this. Why does it matter? It matters because looking at this kind of data can help us see very clearly that different varieties can be optimized for different environments. That some varieties are going to perform better in some places, but also that some varieties are going to have good performance across a large range of environments. Um, and that's important in coffee because we don't really have the infrastructure in coffee to have very niche specialized varieties for micro regions yet. I, I hope that we'll get there one day, but oftentimes we are looking for, for varieties that will perform well across a large range of environments. Okay, so we can see that genetics by environment interaction exists for coffee. We have a sense that it might matter, that if we can choose varieties that are optimized for a certain environment, not just today, but maybe for future environments as well, that that could um, probably help producers a lot. Um, but one of the other things uh, that, that we think is probably true is that this genetics by environment interaction, when we talk about um, optimizing, we can see, okay, early growth vegetation uh, measurements, yes, we can optimize for that. Yield, we can optimize for that. Can we optimize for quality? Is there a genetics by environment interaction for cup quality? And how does the genetics by interaction, uh, genetics by environment interaction impact what a coffee tastes like? The answer is that we have no idea. We have no idea. We barely have any idea what the impact of genetics is on quality. We have virtually no idea what the impact of environment is on quality, and we certainly don't have any idea what the combination of the two is doing to cup quality. I said we have no idea. We have like a teeny, tiny, tiny idea. So there's this one really great study from 2012 from some French researchers um, at CIRAD that showed us very clearly that different, the same genetics can be expressed differently in different environments. Uh, they took a single variety called Laurina, and they grew it in 16 different environments, and actually at 16 different altitudes. It turns out altitude is a really good proxy for temperature. And what they found was a pretty clear signal, pretty clear set of relationships between higher temperatures and certain off flavors, in particular earthy and green. And that those off flavors were associated pretty strongly with certain volatile organic compounds, which may have contributed to their development. So this study gives us a, a pretty interesting idea that this is a question worth pursuing, but it's just one variety. What if we added 
a huge fourth dimension to this. What if we looked at lots of varieties in lots of environments and tried to untangle what are the relationships between the underlying chemistry that's either being expressed or not expressed because of those different environments, uh, and then at the end, what shows up in the cup? What is the coffee actually tasting like? What are the particular flavors and aromas that are being expressed? When I think about the sort of magnitude of that problem, it brings me to um, one of my favorite examples of sort of modern mystery solving and sleuthing. What you see here is a tablet, an ancient tablet, was discovered in 1900. Turns out to be what we now call a language called Linear B. Hannah has a picture of an old clay tablet covered in squiggles and lines. But at the time that these tablets were discovered, uh, there were about 200 of them, and Researchers and the archaeologists that found them had no idea what language it was, and they had no idea what the script was. It's what we call sort of a black box or a locked room mystery. How do you solve a mystery like that? You, there's no Rosetta Stone, there's no translation, there's nowhere to go to to figure out what does this uh, symbol translate into. It turned out that the solving of this mystery, uh, of cracking the code, what is linear B, was something that took over 50 years and involved dozens of different uh, disciplines, archaeologists, linguists, and dedicated amateurs. And one of them was this very interesting character named um, Alice Kober. She was a classics professor at Brooklyn University, and in her spare time, she would go home at the end of the day, she would sit down at her kitchen table and chain smoke. Apparently, she had zero social life. This is literally all she did for 10 years. She wrote down every single character and every combination of characters that could be found on the 200 tablets that had been discovered, and she methodically uh, categorized them on 180,000 slips of paper, and then she did manual statistical analyses to, to look at the relationships between these symbols. How often did certain combinations appear in a given order? Unfortunately, she died sort of tragically in a car crash before the full mystery of Linear B could be solved, but her work was foundational to its solving. Uh, the code was cracked two years later by a guy named Michael Ventris, who, of course, got all the credit until a really awesome biography of um, Alice Kober was published a couple years ago that um, kind of highlighted her contribution. One of the things I love about this, this mystery, this sort of the solving, the story of the solving of this locked room mystery, it represents one of the kind of true... Uh, a significant intellectual achievement of the 20th century that's really underappreciated. Um, it really shows the power of how looking at the relationships between things, looking, using statistics to uncover these relationships can be an incredibly powerful tool. Okay, so we've got that. So that brings me back to, can we do this for coffee? Can we crack the coffee flavor code and try to uncover uncover and decode what are the relationships between genetics, the environment, uh, the chemistry that's happening in the bean, and the particular flavors that show up in the cup? I think the answer is yes. It's not going to be easy. Uh, we don't know what region of the genome or what genes are involved in the production of particular flavors. We barely know which chemicals are associated with which flavors, and we certainly don't understand how the environment is interacting with those genetics, but I think we can find out. And the really cool thing is, we couldn't have found out until now. You, we needed a certain set of tools at our disposal that didn't exist until literally this year. 
One of them is that if you're going to look for genetics by environment interaction, you need to have the same genetics in many environments, right? Starting in 2015, it was one of the very first things we did at World Coffee Research, we started building this platform. It's called the International Multi-Location Variety Trial. We went to 11 countries and, and partners, and we collected a basket of 30 different varieties, some of the best varieties in the world, and we took them to 22 countries and our partners at National Coffee Institutes in those 22 countries, and we put them on scientifically designed trial sites. So these are, um, every variety is, there's a row of 10. There's three replicates which are randomized. Doesn't really matter, but I'm telling you this because when you have trial sites like this that are replicated and designed in this way across the entire world, you can do statistical analyses and get real results. It's not just a variety growing on a farmer's field and you're not controlling for, for other variables. So this exists now. Um, these trials started going in the ground in 2016. Some of those trees are just beginning to produce their first harvest. This is a site in Nicaragua. Here's our most recent trial in Rwanda. As Hannah cycles through the pictures, what jumps out is how different the environments look. One picture has coffee trees growing on a lush green steep mountain covered in trees, where another has coffee seeds growing in a less hilly terrain in a hotter environment. Uh, here's another one. I'm just showing a couple pictures so you can get a feel for how these trials and how the environments visibly look different, right? Another Nicaragua. Uh, we also have a trial in Kenya, in India, and my personal favorite, even though it doesn't look like very much, is this trial in Zambia. The Zambian site shows coffee trees growing on flat ground in light-colored dirt under a bright sky. The reason I'm really fond of this trial in Zambia is because it's in a very hot, dry place. The environment of this trial in Zambia looks a lot like what we predict the environment will look like for many coffee-growing regions in 50 years. So varieties that do well in this trial may end up being very good bets for farmers who are going to be dealing with the consequences of climate change in the future. I love this trial. So, as I said, these trees are pretty new. They just are starting to produce their first harvest. And at every one of these sites, we're taking super rigorous data collection um, together with our partners. So we have all sorts of weather data, temperature, rainfall. Um, we have meticulous data about how the plants are growing. So the spider graphs I showed you earlier are plant growth measurements. Um, literally counting how many cherries come off of each tree and weighing them out. So we have a platform for examining genetics by environment interaction that has never existed before in the world. And I should also just pause and say that most of these varieties have not been available, not just in those environments, but in these countries where they're growing. Most coffee countries have a small handful of varieties that have been tested and are available. This is bringing a huge new basket of genetic diversity to these countries and working together with the formal partners in those countries, the, the National Coffee Institutes, which are really responsible for making new varieties available to farmers. These are not informal, casual trials. They are formal, um, and they involve all the right people. Okay, so we've got the platform. 
Now we need some tools. So if we're going to look at chemistry, we, the thing that we're especially interested in is volatile organic compounds, right? We're, we're interested in other chemistry too. We're interested in caffeine content and lipid content and trigolines. But volatile organic chemistry, these compounds are the things that are producing those unique combinations of flavors and aromas. So we've known how to measure VOCs for a long time um, using machines that look like this, um, but it's not a lot of places in the world that are used to um, testing coffee in this way. So that's one tool we need at our disposal. Another tool that we need is an objective, repeatable, measurable system for looking at what are the actual flavors and aromas present in a given sample of coffee. Cupping is a really wonderful tool, but we now know through good, rigorous research that it's not very replicable. Different cuppers give different answers. Sensory descriptive analysis is a process where trained tasters, professional tasters who are trained and calibrated um, on a particular methodology, use a tool called the World Coffee Research Sensory Lexicon or other lexicons, and they can take a coffee sample and they can evaluate what flavors are present in it and at what intensity level. Ooh, blueberry, that's like a 4.5, right? It sounds kind of like magic, but it works. And it works because they taste the samples next to reference materials for those different flavors and aromas. Okay, this tool, again, new, didn't exist. It was published in um, 2015. It's the basis for the new coffee taster flavors wheel, but that's not why we made it. We made it to do this research, this kind of research. We needed a tool like this to be able to produce the kind of uh, data about what is going on in the cup of coffee to work backwards to what are those causes. Okay, so you've got the platform, you've got the tools. Now you need a way to link it all up, right? You need a place that can take those samples of coffee and that under one roof can do the chemical analysis, can do the sensory analysis, and ideally can also do an industry-relevant analysis. So yes, what does it taste like, but also what value do you assign it? That could be cupping scores. How do you, how do you rate the value of those particular combinations of flavors? Um, Again, a thing that didn't exist until very, very recently. This is a schematic drawing of the new UC Davis Coffee Science Center, which is going to have, be, have all of these capacities under one roof, which is very rare. So, a way to link it all up. Peter previewed this, but I'm here to announce, I'm very, very excited to be announcing a new collaborative research project uh, from the Specialty Coffee Association, the New Coffee Science Foundation, UC Davis Coffee Center, World Coffee Research, and a really significant missing group of logos here that I am chagrined is missing are the logos of all of our country partners, every single one of those national coffee institutes that is helping execute these trials across the world and without whom none of this would be possible. So, how's it gonna work? We are going to take uh, a subset, we're not gonna look at all 30 varieties, a subset of 12 varieties that are, uh, have good genetic variation and high potential quality. Some of them are more traditional varieties like Pacamada, SL28, Gesha. Some of them are very new varieties, um, F1 hybrids like Centro Americano and Mundo Maya. Growing in 12 countries, uh, it'll actually be 16 sites, so that it'll end up being uh, closer to 200 coffee samples that we're looking at from these particular trials. Exhaustive data collection at every trial about uh, different components of the environment. 
um, harvesting, keeping every single lot totally separate, shipping them to UC Davis Coffee Science Center for storage, careful storage, roasting, sensory evaluation, chemistry evaluation, industry evaluation. It's going to generate a tremendous new data set that is going to be looked at by researchers at UC Davis, uh, researchers at World Coffee Research, and also the underlying data is going to be made available for any researcher in the world who wants to make use of it. This is the work that we do. It's pre-competitive and it's open source. So if you're an aspiring PhD out there who's interested in genetics or um, sensory science, this could be a really cool project to plug into. So I think that this truly is the coffee version of Linear B. I don't know if any, anyone else out there sees that coffee bean in the middle. I saw that and was like, whoa, <laughs> this is pretty cool. <laughs> How did they know? Um, but it's not just what I want to emphasize, especially in the context of the conversation we've been having over the last couple days. It's not just like a cool, shiny project. Where does coffee flavor come from? This actually has the potential to generate tremendous value. Um, for roasters, yes, we're gonna have a data set, a library that's gonna tell you where can you go in the world to find particular combinations of flavors? Which varieties are gonna be producing those flavors in which environments? That's tremendously valuable. But we're also going to have the ability to look at which varieties are optimized for flavor in which environments. Um, I, didn't, I failed to mention this earlier, we're not just gonna be looking at filter coffee, we're also gonna be doing this evaluation on espresso, which feels extremely relevant and new. We're gonna be able to see, are there particular environments where particular varieties are producing particular qualities that are ideal for espresso? Can you imagine how, if you were a farmer in one of those environments and we could kind of hone in on that, the sort of value it might produce for you? If it's hard to imagine this, just think of the, an example that you're probably all aware of, which is geisha in Panama. Geisha is a variety that was out there. It was known, it was grown in farmer fields, but it took finding the exact right environment for that genetic potential to be expressed in, in the way that we've all sort of kind of, that has become lionized, right, in the industry. And think about how much value that has produced for Panamanian coffee farmers. It's very possible that there would be zero coffee farms in Panama right now if Geisha hadn't been um, rediscovered when it was. And think about how we may be able to home in on and create um, new opportunities for identifying the right variety in the right environment for producers. So this isn't just a shiny, fun thing to do. It really is, I think, has the potential to be transformational for the specialty coffee industry in particular, for farmers, for roasters. Um, as Peter said, this kind of work is not work that's easy or cheap to do. And so we are um, pleased to invite you to join us in making this trial a reality. We have the plan built, but the work has not yet begun, and we really are going to need the help of everyone in this room to make it happen. So thank you very much. That was Hannah Neuschwender and me at RICO Symposium this past April. Remember to check out our show notes to find a link to the YouTube video of this talk, a full episode transcript, and a link to speaker bios on the RICO website. RICO Symposium and the Specialty Coffee Expo are coming to Portland in April 2020. Don't miss the forthcoming early bird ticket release. Find us on social media or sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up to date with all of our announcements. 
This has been an episode of the RICO Podcast, brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by Toddy.